Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Ave Geeks podcast. I'm Flight Corporal Jack Anderson, and I'm here with Flight Corporal Nadim Elgazar. Hello, everyone. And Flight Corporal Aiden Paul. How's it going? And as always, we are going to be your hosts for this episode. Now, for this week's episode, we have a sort of interesting idea in mind. Uh, over the past week, each one of us has researched uh, a very interesting aviation story. Um, and tonight, we're going to be telling those stories. So um, Elgazar's story is the story of... Uh, actually, maybe you'd like to just give a brief summary of what it is really quickly before we start. Yeah, for sure. Before I do that, I'd just like to say we did take like a two-week break. It was like Easter, then March break. But we're back now. So... Uh... And my story is about uh, the story of Louis Zamperini based off the book of Unbroken, which is a very book, good book. I encourage everyone to read that. So, Yep. And then uh, Flight Corporal Paul, which one were you doing? Uh, mine is the story of the All-American. It's this one B-17 that got basically sliced in half. Yeah. And that one kept on flying. I've read that and that is a very yeah. impressive story. B-17s, these things were, they are built different. Oh, they most certainly were. And then my story was the story of the Red Baron, who was considered to be the best fighter pilot of all time. So that said, let's start uh, getting into some aviation stories. So Flight Corporal Alguzar, you're going to read your story first. Yeah, for sure. So as I said, I'm doing Louis Zamperini. And as a child, uh, he is what you could call a, a troublemaker. He would rob food from his neighbor's houses and police would visit their residence quite often. So, uh, but all that would change during his teen years when his uh, brother, Pete Zamperini was considered sort of like the role model of the family. And uh, he was encouraging uh, Louis to uh, get out and run. And during their, and every day he would push Louis to run more and more. And, and he, and my bad, he was a championship athlete at uh, Torrance high school in uh, Torrance, California. And he was encouraging Louis to get off cigarettes and uh, start running. So it did soon pay off. Uh, Louis became a star athlete and later broke the national high school record for the fastest mile, which is four minutes and 21 seconds. And at the time, four minutes and like a mile in four minutes considered was considered impossible. So to do that in your high school years, that was uh, quite impressive. He did participate in the 1936 Olympics and uh, he did actually get to meet Adolf Hitler. And at the time, he was the youngest Olympic runner at the age of 19. And although he did not do well in the race, as he had to run five kilometers instead of one and a half, which is what he was used to running, uh, he had one of the fastest final laps in Olympic history, which is really impressive. And in Germany, even Adolf Hitler complimented him and shook his hand and said, ah, you were the boy of the fast finish. So there was no like war then. So I guess it could have been quite impressive. So. And now let's get into his military career as it's important to know his backstory before you get into that. So since the Olympics were canceled in 1940, Louis enlisted, enlisted in the American Army Air Corps in the uh, 1941. As a B-24 bombardier, you could say he cheated death multiple times from his perch in the nose of a craft named uh, Superman. He flew several missions, including uh, a famous December 1942 air raid on Wake Island. Uh, after which his plane nearly ran out of fuel before limping back to Midway Atoll. And during a subsequent uh, bombing run over the tiny island of Nararu, uh, Japanese Zero fighter planes attacked Zamperini's B-24, seriously wounding several crewmen and killing one. Uh, leaking hydraulic fluid, the shredded B-24 only narrowly avoided disaster during an emergency landing on the island of uh, 
Funafuti and Zamperini and his crewmates later learned that their plane had been riddled with nearly 600 holes from enemy gunfire and Sharpenel. And the B-24 was not like, we, we had this discussion, and it was not great, but it was, for it to take 600 uh, bullets, that's, that's pretty good. So, and on May 27th, 1943, Zamperini and his crew were participating in a search and rescue mission over the Pacific when their plane suddenly lost power to two of its engines and uh, careened into the sea. Only three of the ship's 11 crewmen survived. Zamperini himself, pilot Russell Allen Phillips, and the tail gunner uh, Francis McNamara. Adrift on a pair of life rafts with only meager provisions, the trio spent the next several weeks braving blistering heat, hunger, dehydration, and circling packs of sharks, which they fend off with their paddles. On one occasion, machine gunners from a passing Japanese bomber strafed the airmen, deflating one of their rafts and leaving the other on the verge of ruin. They miraculously survived, and the fellow castaways survived on rainwater and the occasional captured bird, fish, and even shark liver, but all soon saw their weight drop below 100 pounds, and uh, Macronamara perished after 33 days at sea. Zamperini and Phillips remained adrift for another two weeks before being captured by the Japanese Navy near the Marshall Islands. By then, the men had drifted an astonishing 2,000 miles or 47 days all that with not much food or water, barely enough to survive. And one of them fortunately uh, passed away. So after being held for some six weeks on the island, I'm really sorry if I mispronounce this, but Coagulain uh, Zamperini was shipped to the Japanese mainland and eventually confined to three different interrogation centers and prisoner of war camps. Over the next two years, he suffered from disease, exposure, starvation, and nearly daily beatings from guards. There was one very well-known one. His main tormentor was uh, Michiro Watanabe, nicknamed the bird by the prisoner of wars, took particular glee in torturing this runner. And during the stinks at the uh, Omori and Noetsu prison camps, Michiro pummeled Zamperin with clubs, belts, and fists, and regularly threatened to kill him. On one occasion, even made Zamperini hold a very head and wooden pole, and uh, he had to hold it over his head and the guard threatened that if he dropped it, he would get shot. And he even made the American prisoners punch each other until they all fell pretty much unconscious. And uh, his reputation as a former Olympian sort of saved him from execution at the hands of the Japanese, but it kind of singled him out when uh, it came to special punishment. So guards at the Ofuna interrogation center forced a weak and starved Zamperin to run foot races against Japanese competitors. And if he had the nerve to win, they beat him. And uh, the, even the Tokyo radio show uh, encouraged them, tried to persuade him to read propaganda messages over the air. Uh, Zamperini had been given up for dead back home as he'd been more than a year over in Japan. And the Japanese hoped to use him as a tool to lower American morale and uh, paint the US government as being incompetent. Zamperini agreed to read a message telling his parents to, uh, he was alive, but despite warnings that he would be uh, condemned to a punishment camp, he refused to cooperate any further. And he did put special messages in there to uh, actually, like a sort of secret messages that his parents would get that he was alive. And uh, Zamperini and his fellow prisoners of war were, liber were liberated during the Japanese surrender in September, 1945, after the uh, bombings of Hiroshima and uh, Nagasaki.
and, but his wartime experience would continue to haunt him. He would, he would depended on alcohol to, st- uh, to just fend off his nightmares. And, uh, he was, he was really struggling for a good four years until he meant, uh, met after witnessing a sermon by the, uh, preacher, Billy Graham. And, uh, he went on to discuss his, uh, conversion to Christianity on a nationwide speaking tour. And, uh, yeah, in 1950, he returned to Japan and uh, he even tried to meet, uh, Watanabe during the 1998 winter Olympics. And that's the story about Louis Zamperini and, uh, if Paul and Anderson, if you have any questions or anything to add, I'll be happy to answer. Um, no, just that that's an incredible story of uh, sure. determination, perseverance. Um, that, that truly is an inspiring story. So I think it was perfect to put in this episode. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, it, I read it from a book and I never really forgot it. It was one of great books. So I just and there is a movie about it too. It's a very it good movie by the exact same name, Unbroken. Yeah. Uh, last I checked, it was on Netflix. So if you have that, you can go and search it up on there. I would highly recommend watching it. For sure. It's really um, good. All right. That said, let's move on to Flight Corporal Paul with the story of the All American. All right. So date is February 1st, 1943, where a squadron of B 17 bombers are taken off from Algeria. They belong to 417 Squadron 97th Bombardment Group, and they're heading off to their target in Tunisia. So in one B-17 named the All-American, sits Lieutenant Ken Bragg Jr. and his co-pilot Godfrey Engel Jr. So on their route to their target, the bomber group is repeatedly harassed by BF-109s. They keep on their target, and eventually the German fighters peel off just before the flak starts. So besides superficial damage, the All-American receives no real damage and eventually the formation turns for home. So on their return home and once finally out of the flak, the formation is targeted again by German fighters. The formation hangs on tenaciously as German BF-109s take chunks out of the B-17s. Eventually, the fighters reach their maximum range and are forced, and are forced to also turn for home. So thankfully, the All-American is still in one piece. The bomber crews breathe a sigh of relief as they're almost out of German airspace. And then suddenly, two BF-109s are spotted moving head-on towards the formation. These two 109s are flown by two very experienced pilots. And the first one guns for the lead bomber. The All-American defends the lead bomber as good as it can, pumping lead into that first 109. The BF-109 is critically damaged, and it goes down into the desert below. The second BF-109, Yellow One, gets the All-American in its sights. The pilot, Eric Paxiev, is this ace pilot with, I think it was 16 victories to his name. So he's a pretty, he's a pretty good fighter pilot at this point. So he plans to take the All-American head-on and then roll underneath it. Um, the All-American's nose gunner has different plans and gets to work shooting at the 109. The All-American is hit hit a few times, but her crew keeps on firing, peppering the fighter with lead. So his attack run done, Yellow One begins to roll out, but the hail of gunfire from the All-American does its job, incapacitating the pilot. Whether from mechanical problems or the fact that Peksiev was unconscious, he is unable to finish his maneuver and heads straight for the All-American. The crew hears this massive crash-like sound, as the BF-109 rips straight through the All-American's fuselage, nearly splitting it in half. 
So the plane lurched and kind of writhed at the controls with Bragg struggling to keep the bird straight and level. Meanwhile, the rest of the crew picks themselves up and they see that the plane has a massive gaping hole in the fuselage. With the rudder looking like it would give away at any moment, both engines on the right non-functional, only one engine on the left fully functional with one of the elevators completely missing. So put simply, it was an absolute miracle that this plane was still flying. So the crew tightens their parachutes, getting ready to jump as soon as the tail gave way. It Surprisingly, it didn't. And other B-17s in the formation were absolutely astonished to see that this supposedly critically damaged B-17 stay in the air and then somehow pitch up to everyone, which it was. It was a miracle, which, I mean, it was. So one accompanying bomber, the flying, the flying flick gun, snapped an iconic photo of the All-American, which you can find on the internet pretty easily. You just got to Google All-American B-17, and it's all over the there. So as Bragg looked into the fuselage, he later recalled that there was metal strewn everywhere while wires were dangling. Three quarters of the fuselage had been sliced through, and there was still a good chunk of the B-17's wing lodged in the side. Yeah. So the tail gunner had to crawl across the floor with Briggs jacket and some gun brushes for like a good five minutes trying to get out of the most dangerous part of the plane at that point. So roughly an hour or so later, they reach American-controlled airspace, and surprisingly, they actually managed to land the plane. And not only did they land the plane... None of the crew were injured, and the All-American kept on flying for the rest of the war until having to be scrapped in 1945, which is absolutely ridiculous. I, that, that shocks me. I am yeah. I'm bewildered right now. That makes no sense. A plane gets practically torn in half, and the pilots are able to land. All I can say is those pilots must have been world-class in order to do that. You, you need to have some pretty massive skills there in order to land a plane that is that heavily damaged and not injure a single member of the crew. That is a miracle. When you speak about miracles, I I can't think of anything more impressive than landing a plane that was cut in half or sliced in half and everyone surviving and still being able to land that plane safely. That is, I don't even know. Exactly. A few weeks ago, we talked about we talked about the miracle on the Hudson. This is like this is a hundred times yeah. more amazing than that. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like not only did more. they manage to land it, they managed to keep up with the entire formation with a single engine running. And on top of that, <laughs> and on top of that, they, it, it flew for the last for until 1945. It this was during World War, like it wasn't even a modern day plane that could, like was known to survive on one engine. This is like World War II. Exactly. Yeah, that doesn't even make sense. All I can say for that story is wow. Yeah. All right. And now for my story. So for my story, I, um, I researched the Red Baron. So Manfred von Richthofen was born on the 2nd of May, 1892 in Rockla, Poland. Sorry if I butchered that which at the time was a part of the German Empire. So it has often been said that the Red Baron was a born pilot, but this could not be farther from the truth. 
In fact, in the fall of 1914, just after the outbreak of war, Manfred was just another low-ranking officer in the cavalry serving on the Western Front. He almost lost his life there when an enemy artillery barrage hit his division. Lots of men were dead, and even the horse that he had been riding on had been killed. So he said that he had been spared by God and that it was a message to leave the cavalry. He decided instead to join the German air service. At first, all of his fellow soldiers called him a coward, but he soon would prove them wrong. At first, he was sent to the Eastern Front and assigned to be the observer slash bombardier on another pilot's aircraft. Fortunately for Richthofen, the German Air Force was short on pilots, and so in the fall of 1915, he was sent to the Western Front for flight school. On his first solo, Manfred panicked and crashed his plane, thus failing the exam. On his second attempt, he also failed it. Finally, on his third try in late 1915, he finally passed the exam and was awarded his wings. Unfortunately for him, he was sent to the Eastern Front instead of the Western. So since the Russian military didn't have many planes at the time, he spent his time there attacking ground troops and supply columns. During a mission in August, he attacked a large group of Russian Cossack cavalrymen. This action smashed their offensive and forced the Russian army to retreat. His observer said, they'll give us medals for this. But Manfred's reward was much better than any medal. That night, the great uh, Bolke, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, who was Germany's most famous flying ace, dropped by his tent and invited him to the new squadron consisting of some of the top aces that he was forming. Manfred was deeply honored and, of course, accepted. On the morning of September 17, 1916, Richthofen scored his first aerial kill when his squadron attacked a group of British aircraft. To celebrate his first kill, Manfred ordered a silver cup inscribed with the date and the type of aircraft. This would later become a tradition, with the ace ordering a silver cup to celebrate each of his 80 aerial victories. His victories quickly started skyrocketing, and on November 23, 1916, he scored his 10th kill. At only the age of 24, he became worldwide famous. Manfred was awarded the Gotha Medal and the Pour le Merite, which was Germany's highest honor. He was also given command of his own squadron, named Jagstaffel 11, and he celebrated with a rather unexpected move. He painted his albatross biplane bright red, Thus, the name, the Red Baron, was born. His other pilots pointed out to him that he would not be able to conceal himself from the enemy. His response was, I don't wish to hide. I want the enemy to see me and to fear me. In the spring of 1917 came the Baron's most successful period yet. In the month of April, German air forces ruled the skies over the Western Front. It was nicknamed Bloody April. He almost doubled his victories during this time. In fact, he scored his 49th, 50th, 51st, and 52nd kills all in a single day. He was promptly promoted to the rank of captain. He was also given the much higher honor of an invitation to have lunch with the Kaiser. And after this event, the Baron returned to his squadron very quickly. 
On the morning of July the 6th, 1917, over Ypres uh, in Belgium, I think I'm saying that right, uh, Manfred was shot down while attempting to claim his 18th victory. I, hmm, I don't think that's right, 18th. I might have had that wrong, but... Um, so, miraculously, he was able to land the aircraft safely in a field despite suffering a partial blackout. He is quickly found by German soldiers and taken to a nearby hospital. The army surgeons fixed the hole that was made in his head and remarked that if the bullet had hit him at a slightly different angle, it would have gone straight through his skull and he would have been long dead. Within just one week, the Baron was up and walking and anxious to get back flying. Against the warnings of his doctors, he returned to his squadron on September 2nd, 1917. It was around this time that his Albatross biplane was replaced with a Fokker triplane. His first kill in the new plane was his 60th victory. Into the spring of 1918, he reported having trouble sleeping, saying that every night he would have the exact same dream of a burning plane crashing to the ground. On the morning of April 21st, 1918, the Baron's infamous squadron, nicknamed the Flying Circus, intercepted a squadron of enemy fighter and scout aircraft. The day before, Manfred had won his 80th kill and he was determined to make it 81. He singled out a lone British aircraft and closed in for the kill. For once, his keen instincts didn't alert him to the presence of another enemy plane coming up behind him. The British Sopwith Camel, flown by Captain Roy Brown, opened fire and damaged the Baron's plane, as well as critically injuring him. The Red Triplane landed near the British trenches, but when soldiers looked inside, they found that he was already dead. With his, with his hands still on the controls, the Red Baron, always a perfectionist, had used his dying moments to perform a perfect three-point landing. I have to admit, that is pretty impressive that while dying, he was able to land an airplane. Yeah, that is. That and is the fact cool. that he had the nerve to paint his plane all red and still fly, and because he wanted the enemy to see him, that is impressive. But It yeah. clearly worked, though, because he became famous all over the world, and pretty much all enemy fighter pilots became afraid of him. He was, he was also nicknamed uh, the Red Devil or Germany's Red Knight. So he had some very cool nicknames. He was a very cool guy. Um, there was a movie about him a while ago. It used to be on Netflix, but it isn't anymore. Um, it, it's simply called Red Baron. Very good movie. I'd recommend it. Um, yeah, well, that about wraps up our time for tonight. But just before we go, We'd like to have a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by the 102 Squadron Air Cadets. Right now, we're unable to do our normal. Oh, sorry, I didn't say something. Yeah, okay. Nope, um, nope, didn't say anything. Sorry. All right, then. This podcast is made possible by the 102 Squadron Air Cadets. Right now, we're unable to do our normal fundraising due to the pandemic. So instead, we made a squadron cookbook. All three of us are members of the cookbook committee and have seen the months of hard work that have gone into it. It includes recipes from almost every cadet, officer, and member of staff. Books will be available for pre-order very soon, so keep your eyes peeled. Yeah, and that about wraps up this week's episode of the Ave Geeks podcast. We'd once again like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Have a good one. Have a good one. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>